Hey, it's Martine. Before we start the show, I wanted to let you know that we have the Post's advice columnist, Carolyn Hacks, coming back to Post Reports. You might remember hearing her on the show a few months ago, answering your questions about the pandemic. It was great. So we're doing it again. And this time, we want questions related to the holidays. Questions like how to navigate awkward tension with your in-laws, or whether you actually need to buy an expensive Christmas gift for your spoiled nephew, or how soon is too soon to invite your new boo to Hanukkah dinner. Whatever your predicament, Carolyn will have advice. Send us your questions by recording a short voice memo on your phone and emailing it to postreports at washpost.com. We can't wait to hear it and enjoy the show. Right now, on the border of Poland and Belarus, thousands of refugees are stuck in limbo. They were invited there by the president of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, Not to stay there, just to go through it to get into the European Union. But the offer was a bait-and-switch, part of a political move by Lukashenko against the EU. And that power play has created a migrant crisis. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, November 18th. Today, the refugees being used as political pawns. And after the break... We continue our series, Teens in America, with a story about what it means to pass as white. As of Thursday, many of the 2,000 people waiting on the border between Belarus and Poland have been moved to a government warehouse, which has eased some suffering from harsh winter conditions. But there are 5,000 more refugees throughout Belarus with no clear future. Belarusian President Lukashenko is retaliating against the EU. That's because sanctions were placed on Belarus after last year's elections that kept him in power. Lukashenko clamped down on political opposition and even went as far as grounding a plane to arrest a dissident journalist. Now he's basically manufacturing a migrant crisis in response to these sanctions. I think one of the things that makes it really difficult is the extent that it's politically orchestrated, right? When you talk to the NGO workers and the humanitarians that are working in this crisis, I mean, they say the situation is clear. These are still vulnerable people that need humanitarian aid who are coming out of really difficult situations. But I think often maybe they're not getting maybe the amount of sympathy they normally would do because of this, the fact that you have this dictator who's really pulling the strings behind them. That's Loveday Morris, the post-Berlin bureau chief. Earlier this month, Loveday spent time on the border following a Polish aid group as they searched for migrants. I asked her what the crisis looks like right now and what it's like for the people there. Well, it's actually difficult to get there. Um, Poland's sealed off part of the border and has made it an emergency zone. But what you can see from aerial footage and from footage from some of the journalists that get down there, and we're also in touch with a lot of migrants who are stuck on the border, is basically large crowds of people that have been moved down there. They say that they're moved along to different points along the border at the whim of kind of the the Belarusian guards to try and put pressure on the poles and to try and find places for them to cross, basically. And the Belarusians will drive them up and down. Even some people say cut holes in the border fence and push them across. 
And then often they're pushed back by um, the Poles and not allowed to claim asylum as international law says that they should be. But Belarusians push them back again and people can spend really months on that border with very little food, very little water. And now the temperatures are really dropping. So the situation is really grim now. So who are these refugees and where do they come from? Well, talking to groups that work on the border, they've really seen a quite a wide mix of people. They say they've even seen Cubans coming across, people from Africa, Congo. Most of them, though, are from the Middle East and uh, really quite a large amount um, Iraqis and Iraqi Kurds, but a lot of Syrians too. And um, anyone that, you know, wants to flee their country and, and sees this as a way into the EU. And so how did these refugees end up in Belarus? Right. Well, in about June, Alexander Lukashenko announced that he wasn't going to protect Europe's borders, basically. Um, He was going to open them for drugs traffickers and refugees. And that was after the latest round of European sanctions. And then essentially travel agents in the Middle East and elsewhere started selling these package deals for flights and visas into Belarus and people got kind of taxis down to the border and hotels in Minsk. They were all kind of included in this package. And initially it was a lot easier for people to cross. And initially Lukashenko had been pushing people more towards um, Lithuania, but that changed later. And more recently the focus has been more on Poland. But as sort of Poland and Lithuania have, have reinforced their borders, put out more barbed wire and sent a lot more forces down there, you have this situation where people are really trapped there. And they say that when they're pushed back by the Poles, the Belarusian forces beat them and push them back again over the border. You know, there's no way out then, even if people want to come home. I'm trying to understand a little bit more about the motivations of President Lukashenko here. So you said that this opening of the borders, that was in response to these sanctions. Can you talk a little bit about those sanctions and why Lukashenko decided that what he was going to do is basically invite in a bunch of migrants from other places and then push them into other countries? Sure. Well, we have um, we had elections last year in Belarus that Lukashenko won, but there were obviously huge allegations of fraud and protests. And the first EU sanctions followed that. And then in May this year, we had the quite audacious diversion of a European plane that was flying with a journalist on board that um, was wanted by Belarus. And um, he diverted that plane um, and detained the journalist on board. And following that, there was a new round of sanctions from the EU targeting Belarus. And that was really when he retaliated with this move, using some of the world's most vulnerable people to, to kind of get back at the EU. So how are other countries responding to this? The fact that refugees have basically been used as an attempt at retribution against them? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a really difficult situation. Um, these people are arriving in a Europe that's really different from the Europe of 2015 and where there was this refugees are welcome attitude. It's, it's really not the Europe that they're um, arriving in now. So despite, obviously, a lot of hand-wringing about the plight of these people, 
there's also, you know, not a lot of concern, it seems, about the fact that they're not being allowed to claim asylum in Poland, even though that that would be in line with normal asylum procedure. So the strategy is mainly on the European side, focused on how to keep these people out of Belarus. So there have been talk of sanctioning airlines. We've seen a lot of the air routes into Belarus shut down now. I'm in touch with a lot of people that were actually trying to get to Belarus, Iraqis, desperate to get there because they want a chance to get into Europe. But um, I was talking to one guy that just flew back to Iraq because he can no longer find a way in. He tried in Istanbul, he tried in in Dubai and can't actually get there. And Iraq has started repatriation flights now for people who are who are stuck on the border. So there's been a, a lot of effort to help people stay out and to get people out, basically. You have spent some time with aid groups who are helping these migrants once they cross into Poland. Can you talk a little bit about some of the stories that you heard from them and what they've seen? Sure. I mean, they've been trying to help people for months. Um, So because the Poles have set up this emergency zone on the edge of the border, they they can't actually get into the border zone and are not allowed to help people directly on the border. They can only help people when they get out of this buffer zone and manage to cross that. And often when they reach Poland, they're in quite a bad situation. So I spent some time with an age group earlier in November and was staying with them overnight. And actually, they have a group phone that was just constantly pinging with messages from groups of people that were stuck in the forest, basically, between Belarus and Poland. So um, they get a lot of messages and people send their locations and say they're freezing in the forests. And they have to say, sorry, we, we can't help you until you're, you're out of this kind of red zone on the border. So uh, I think they often feel quite helpless. Um, but we got one ping um, one morning from a group of Syrians who had made it outside of the red zone. So what they do, they call them interventions. They uh, take um, hot food, warm clothes, water, medical assistance. They travel with medics and go out and try and find these refugees careful not not to alert the Polish authorities because um, if they realize these people are here, they're often detained and then pushed back to the other side of the border with Belarus and the whole cycle starts again. So um, yeah, we went out um, into the woods to find this group of Syrians. They were in a, a pretty bad state when we found them. They were completely terrified, jumping at any movement. One of the women was doubled over on the ground, um, sort of curled up uh, on the forest floor. She'd had a a miscarriage just after she'd crossed the border. Um, So the doctor started seeing to her. But I mean, it's not unusual to have cases like this for them. I mean, people, especially now that it's getting colder, people are coming over in in a really difficult situation and um, people are also dying in the woods, you know. Um, the Poles, um, just a couple of days after that, said they'd found the body of a young Syrian. That is so awful. I, I, 
I wonder what people had to say about the situation that they were in and what led them to be there. I mean, do they feel like there was a betrayal here, that it seemed like Belarus was going to be welcoming to them, and then all of a sudden they are in these horrible circumstances? I think there's a mix depending on when people arrived. I went to a migrant center also in um, Poland where they had some people who had been detained but, but not sent back by Polish um, forces. And, you know, a lot of people said they actually knew what they were, maybe they didn't think it would be quite as hard, but that it was worth it and that they would do it again because um, life in Iraq or in Syria is so hard. You know, um, I talked to one eight months pregnant woman actually who'd um, spent a month, a month on the border with her three young children. They'd been pushed back, I think, six times back and forth across the border. They were drinking from swamps and um, they said that if the Poles deported them to Iraq or Belarus, that they'd just do it all over again and they'd, they'd do it as long as it took. Oh there was actually another Syrian I was speaking to and he said, we know we're pawns, you know, we know we're political pawns, but this is an opportunity for me as a Syrian, you know. Mm-hmm. He was desperate to get to Europe. Um they're not under any illusions about what's happening, um, but many people see it as a chance. Hmm. You know, I've heard Alexander Lukashenko referred to as Europe's last dictator. And in some ways, that makes me feel like maybe he's not that worried about what the uh, political fallout will be for essentially putting so many of these migrants in this dire situation. But is there a potential for repercussions for him? Or or what does this whole situation say about him and his leadership? I mean, I think he was obviously hoping to gain something out of this, which is becoming increasingly looks like that won't be the case. You know, he wanted recognition, perhaps an end to sanctions. And what he's ended up with is more sanctions and um, a situation where he he has thousands of of, um, migrants and refugees in Belarus who he doesn't want to deal with. So yeah, I think to an extent um, it's backfired on him. I'm not sure he really cares about um, his international reputation at this point. I mean, yeah, there's a reason he's he's known as Europe's last dictator. And Are any other countries doing anything to get involved in this situation or to help get these migrants out of where they are on the border? Iraq has um, begun uh, rescue flights, essentially, and there have been discussions between German Chancellor Angela Merkel and uh, Lukashenko, but it's unclear at the moment exactly what they're going to do with these people. There were some reports that Lukashenko had been asking um, for Europe to take some of them, but the European Union's saying uh, they've agreed to nothing. So yeah, we'll have to wait and see. In the meantime, a lot of these people are just waiting there on the border. And what happens once winter starts? You mentioned that these people are in freezing conditions. How could this situation get even worse? Yeah, sure. I mean, you just have to spend a little bit of time in the Polish forest at the moment. I mean, it's below freezing at night already. Um, the air is damp and um, it's really icy. And just imagining spending one night in that is um, grim, not, you know, let alone night after night. It's only going to get more dangerous for people. We are seeing 
a little bit of movement now with with the rescue flights and perhaps um, an easing on the border. So we'll have to wait and see and see if some kind of solution is found for these people. But I'm sure you will still um, have people who want to stay and try their luck to cross that border. And um, yeah, it's getting colder by the day. Loveday Morris is the post-Berlin bureau chief. The story was produced by Rennie Svernovsky and edited by Alexis Diao. After the break, what happens when you see yourself as a person of color, but some other people see you as white? We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. Ishtaka Lira was scrolling through Instagram one day when they came across a post. It was a drawing of two white women. One of them was blonde with an orange spray tan, and the other had long, dark hair, thick eyeliner, and was dressed in a punk outfit. The women are looking at each other, and there's a thought bubble over both of their heads. It reads, she's so hot. So when I saw the post, I immediately thought to myself, oh, like, obviously these two white people think that they're attractive to one another because whiteness is the beauty standard. And so Ichitaka commented the most obvious thing that they could think of. Quote, they are both white. I didn't really think twice about my comment after I submitted it. So it was just really shocking when I, like, checked my phone a couple hours later um, because I ended up getting replies like, you're white too. This comment sent Ichitaka reeling because they're not white. They're Mexican with indigenous ancestry. This is the latest story in our series with YR Media, where I talk with teens around the country about race and identity. Today, Ishtaka asks, what does it mean to pass as white? And so tell me about what your reaction was when you saw these random strangers on the internet, assuming that you are white and calling you white. So, yeah, it was definitely awkward. Like, I kind of laughed it off because I'm really rooted in my culture and, and my identity. I talk about being a person of color with my friends, like, every day and with my family, too. So I know that I'm not white. But when I thought about it more and I thought about the whole situation, it was definitely invalidating, even if I know who I am, especially because, like, yeah, the people online just erased my identity and assumed something of me. And so I, I actually brought this post up to my parents to like get their input to figure out whether or not they they felt the same way or if they could provide any sort of advice. So like through this, I showed them my profile picture. Let's just go back to your picture. Mm -hmm. And you're saying like, are you white? Like you're my child. I know you're not white, yeah, you yeah. know, but are you, you super light skinned on this? And can someone look at you at a glance and say, that's a white person? Like, yeah. 
I still don't accept um, that a person like you is a white passing. And that's maybe because uh, I have a personal bias as well, you know, because you kind of look like me. So it sounds like your parents had slightly different takes on this, right? Your mom was like, mm, I could see that people might mistakenly believe that you look white in this picture. And your dad sounded kind of offended. What do you make of that difference? Like, why do you think that they had different perspectives on this? My profile picture um, at the time, I had like much lighter skin because of this filter that I had on. My nose was a little bit smaller. So um, I can definitely see why I guess at first glance, like my mom was saying, I might not look like a person of color. But I was more really surprised by my dad's remark because he does sound a little offended, yeah. And I think that's because he has always considered himself to be like a light-skinned person. We're about the same shade in real life. So I think that him like hearing that people have called me white on the internet, I think he also took personal offense to that because he was like, yeah, if you're calling my kid white, then you're calling me white. So, Ichitaka, it seems like you've been thinking a lot about what it means to pass as white. Can you talk a little bit more about the term white passing and why you think it's something that people are discussing a lot right now? The first time that I actually heard of this term was in a history class back in, like, middle school. And I learned that, like, during the antebellum period and just when slavery ended, mixed-race Black people, usually with, like, mostly European ancestry, they would use their more like racially ambiguous appearance to pass as white. And this was like a means of survival, but it's being used in a completely different context. Now, those that are lighter skinned have sort of been told that they have a proximity to whiteness because they are lighter skinned and that should be categorized as being white passing. And these conversations are something that I've been following all year on TikTok and especially discourse around the term white passing and who falls under that really just vague label today. Especially because if I can be considered a white passing and I've never seen myself in this way before, I really just, I want to know what's going on. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really important distinction that you're making of how the term white passing has changed. Because you're saying that it used to be an act, right? That someone would decide for reasons oftentimes having to do with their survival or the success of their family that they would intentionally um, kind of pass into presenting as white. But that now it's kind of an insult that is lobbed at light-skinned people to make them feel like they're not part of a community. Yeah, absolutely. And I think some people embrace this term and some people don't. Like, you can identify as white passing if you think it so applies to you. So you talked a little bit about some of these issues with your friend Xander. Can you talk to me about your conversation with them? Um, Yeah, I was talking with my friend Xander. They are half white, half Puerto Rican, about the fact that white people are now more than ever, purchasing ethnic features to look more like people of color, whether that be like purchasing certain body fillers, cosmetic surgeries, just tanning your skin to look darker. Kylie Jenner's uh, story in Forbes about her billion-dollar cosmetics company. Critics are saying she's making a fortune by exploiting Black culture and style. People are accusing Little Mix star Jesse Nelson of blackfishing. Rita's fans started accusing the singer of blackfishing and cultural appropriation after they found out that Rita isn't actually black, though many people thought she was. Now there's a part of the video where she stands by Nicki Minaj and she literally looks darker than Nicki. 
This made a lot of We saw that Adele was recently in the news for appropriating African and Caribbean culture in a recent Instagram post. In the picture, we saw Adele posing wearing a Jamaican flag bikini and donning banjo knots. Those are things my friend Xander and I associate with white people trying to look more quote-unquote ethnic. I think we as POC love to shame white people and then white people feel bad about being white and then don't want to be white anymore. Um, and yeah, that's kind of funny because, you know, their ancestors created this construct to benefit you and now you like don't think it's cool anymore. You don't think it's cute. When it comes to what Xander's talking about here, I completely agree with them. White people, they feel the need to appropriate and like purchase ethnic cultural signifiers. And in turn, like they profit off of what people of color just continue to be marginalized for. So how do you think all of this impacts the way that you feel about yourself as a person of color? So yeah, with white people like doing things to make themselves look more quote unquote ethnic, um, for lack of a better word, they are through that expanding what whiteness looks like. And I think that has a huge part of like what makes a lot of people question the race of others, especially people of color. And then this bleeds into the like online discourse that we're seeing now. So when it comes to me, I think that plays a huge part in how I could be perceived as white since I'm lighter skinned because of celebrities who are actually white. Um, like Ariana Grande, make it harder to discern a white person from a person of color, especially because Ariana Grande is just so popular. There's another layer to this. And I think something else is just the fact that it's definitely wrong for white people to see ethnic features being darker or tan or even having like a certain eye shape as like, quote unquote, like cool and something that they should appropriate or, or have. But I also know like people of color who are light skinned or who could pass as white, including myself, we've wished to be darker. We've wished like to have a skin tone that just makes us more like obviously quote unquote ethnic, like my dad or my friend Xander. Uh, they both said that like, yeah, having tanner skin in a way would definitely make them feel more welcomed or just connected. I grew up always wanting to be darker and I think that still rings true is like wanting to have tanner skin to appear more Puerto Rican. And I've always felt pretty white and like my skin tone is something that distances me from my culture. I feel even though- mm-hmm. That's so interesting. I also feel like, and I'm glad that you're acknowledging that, that this is such a complicated conversation because of the history of colorism and how historically being lighter skinned or white passing has been a privilege that comes with a lot of social and economic benefits. And so how are you kind of thinking about these two things, like this history of colorism and the privileges that come with being light-skinned or white-passing at the same time that you are navigating this real feeling of wanting to be seen for your racial identity and how that is sometimes harder if you feel like you look white? Yeah, you like said it really well, because it is definitely a privilege to have lighter skin and darker skin. People have had to go through so much more like racism and discrimination because they are more like visibly people of color. 
colorism plays a major factor um, and is so rampant in all communities of color. And so adding on to this, we're also people of color living in a progressive and diverse place like the Bay Area. And when you're lighter out here, you can't really just enter a space and automatically assume that you're perceived as somebody who can speak on POC issues. So when it comes to like my experience, um, having more of a tan that like lets me look more undoubtedly like a person of color, that can feel really validating. However, I know that this is definitely not the case everywhere. Um, I know my mom spent a lot of her childhood struggling to just generally love her appearance because of her experiences just in the world with being told that looking as brown as she as she is is just not desirable. I'm the fifth child and all of the siblings before me, the four of them were all like lighter skin um, and I'm like the dark skinned one. People that would meet us like wouldn't believe that we were siblings or we would all walk in and my sisters would all get like compliments on how beautiful they were. And then, you know, when they would get to me like, oh, la morenita, you know, she's cute. People always made that distinction, you know, about my skin color. So I was like, I, I got it. I know. I was the dark skinned one. And everyone had to point that out. And I know that these conversations still happen, but I am just so proud of my mom and I'm so thankful that she really like just took the path of loving herself. So I'm curious about how your reporting has influenced how you think about race and identity. I think it's definitely influenced my perception about race and identity a lot. I just realized that it's also super important to remember that mixed race people have been dealing with identity erasure for centuries. And the other thing that I was like noticing was the fact that language has simply just not evolved fast enough with the rate that these complex discussions about race are happening. We don't have enough words to describe people of color who also just don't feel like they fit into anything that's out there right now. I want to acknowledge that I benefit from white privilege as whiteness continues to look more ethnic, but I don't want to call myself white passing because I would like to honor my identity in a way that's a bit more complex than just using this one word to really sort of speak for all the parts of me that I really think are so special and deserve to just really be recognized. That's Ishtaka Lira, one of the teen reporters that we've been talking to for our series with YR Media about race and identity. We'll have one final story from this series next week, and we'd still like to hear from you. Are you a teen wrestling with how race affects the way that the world sees you, or the parent of a teen trying to help your child navigate these issues? Record a voice memo on your phone and email it to postreports at washpost.com. This story was produced by Sabi Robinson and Amber Lee. It was edited by Robin Amer and Rebecca Martin, with additional editing from Maggie Penman, Rena Flores, Renita Jablonski, Krissa Thompson, and Kyra Kyles. Mixing by Sean Carter and Ted Muldoon. 
Original music by Alejandro Figueroa, Jacob Armenta, and Noah Holt. Additional tape courtesy of The View, Top 10 Beyond the Screen, and Noah Glenn Carter. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Thank you.